Good morning. Well, we all have a breaking point, don't we? We all get to a point in life when the struggles and the pressures and the difficulties reach a certain point where we can no longer handle it and we just kind of lose it. We just kind of go sideways and, and we explode, we say. That expression, lose it, implies that we had control over something and now we no longer do. And, and, and when we lose it, when we hit that breaking point, what we do is very revealing about the kind of people we are, isn't it? You know, whether it's good or bad, the actions you take at that moment when you hit that breaking point and you lose it reveals who you are. Now, I don't mean just in that exact moment. Hopefully, we all have a little bit of grace to realize that life is difficult, and sometimes when we lose control, we lose control, right? But, but it's really what I'm talking about in the next hour or the next day that what you do reveals the true character of your heart, isn't it? Well, that's how all people are, and so are the people in the Scriptures, People in the Bible were just like us. That's why the Scriptures are so relevant to even to people like us thousands of years after these events were written in a different culture. It's because situations might change, difficulties will be different, pressures might be, look a little different, but the human heart is the same, and the human heart responds the same. Well, Hannah, who we're looking at as we begin our study of 1 Samuel, is just one of those people. You see, at this point, when we meet Hannah, when we introduce her in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and by the way, if you have a Bible, open up the 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah has hit her breaking point. She has had it. What, you, what should be another festival of remembering God's goodness and His pleasure and blessings to her becomes another repetition of, of cruel innuendos, mockery, and insult. And so she had had it once again. You see, the fact of her childlessness was enough in and of itself to deal with, but the fact that there was this woman, the other wife, this aggravator, Penaniah, that always reminded her of her situation was more than she could endure. Now, on the one hand, Hannah had everything that an 11th century woman would want. She had a devout, pious husband. She had a certain amount of wealth that they shared together, and she had a good name. But what she didn't have, and it seemed to be the source of her pain, was that she was unable to bear a child. And particularly, she was not able to bear an heir for her husband, Elkanah. So because of that, she actually had to share her husband with this other woman who became the second wife, Penaniah because Penaniah could provide Elkanah children, and she couldn't. And so every year it was a reminder, particularly at this festival, as Penaniah would hold it in front of Hannah's face, that she wasn't enough for her husband. And so you can imagine that that builds up year over year. It was more than she could bear, but Hannah had to bear it every year. Now, if you didn't know any better, it would sound like we were talking about just another primetime reality TV show, albeit with polygamy involved, but this is exactly how the book of 1 Samuel opens up to us. But you might be wondering, well, what does this relatively minor domestic conflict have to do with God's kingdom expanding throughout the globe? And that's what we're going to find out. 
So if you have a Bible, turn open to 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to look at the entirety of chapter 1 and take it all the way up into chapter 2 and verse 10. Before we jump in, let me pray and I ask God to bless the teaching of His Word. Father, we thank You as we've spent the last two weeks preparing our hearts to dive into the study of this book. Father, we have read through and heard Your Word being read uh, all through chapters 1 through 7. Last week, we got a, a flyover of the entire book, and today we jump in with, with earnestness to see Your character revealed through the complexities of people's lives. Would You bless the teaching of Your Word? Where we, may we walk away with a greater vision of who You are than when we walked in this morning. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hannah's life, like a lot of our lives, are full of good things. But like our lives, Hannah's life has the pain points. Yet Hannah has allowed the pain in her life to actually be the crucible by which God develops within her her faith. And as she grows in her faith in Yahweh, you'll see, hear me use that word a lot, Yahweh is the name of the Lord in the Old Testament. As God develops Hannah's faith and she cries out to Yahweh, He loves to respond to the prayers of faith of His people, and He does so with Hannah. And in His response, this leads Hannah to lead us into this great prophetic prayer in chapter 2. So, in this woman, Hannah, that we'll only see in these two chapters, we are going to see a very painful life, and you will see that in verses 1 through 8, but this painful life develops within Hannah this amazing and precious faith, verses 9 through the remainder of chapter 1, and from this faith, there's this prophetic prayer that really sets the trajectory of the entire book, and that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So that's the way we're looking at this story of Hannah, a painful life that develops a precious faith that leads us into a prophetic prayer that demonstrates the providence of God. Now, that last fourth one really isn't a point. The providence of God is the environment by which all of this is taking place. It's always working in the background in Hannah's life and in our lives as well, really. So with that, let's jump into looking at this painful life of Hannah verses 1 through 8. Now, Elkanah and Hannah are husband and wife, but as I mentioned, Hannah was infertile, so she was unfortunately able to bear Elkanah a son or daughter or an heir to Elkanah's house. And so they did what any 11th century couple would have done. They just take another wife. You see, uh, ancient documents like the Code of Hammurabi tell us that in those societies, uh, society did whatever was necessary, any mechanism necessary, including polygamy, to ensure the perpetuation of the family line. This is not unlike what we see happening in Genesis chapter 16, where Abraham and Sarah, God gives to them the promise of a great nation, but because there's nothing materializing, Sarah says to Abraham, why don't you take my handservant, Hagar, and bear a child through her? So we see this happening all throughout the Scripture. We're going to pick up our narrative uh, here at verse 2 and verse 3. Well, let me back it up to verse 1. Uh, I, I kind of avoid certain passages with names that are hard to pronounce, but that's what you got when you're dealing with the Old Testament, so let's go. Chapter 1, verse 1, there was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Now you can see why I wanted to avoid verse 1. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. 
And Peninnah, excuse me, had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So, so we're not sure, let's stop there, we're not sure if the feasts mentioned there in verses 1 and 2 are any of the feasts that the Pentateuch mentions in Exodus 23 or Deuteronomy 12, but before you get an image of the kind of festivity that we all enjoyed just a few weeks ago at our, our fall kickoff picnic, before you get this image of, of a wonderful kind of civil, family-friendly, family-fun uh, religious celebration, that's not what's going on here at all. What Elkanah and his, his family, Hannah and Penaniah and their children, were attending would have been more like an environment like Mardi Gras, okay? So if you're reading this and thinking fall family kickoff picnic, get rid of that image, insert to it the French Quarter and Mardi Gras, that's more along the lines of the kind of celebration that was going on at that time. But it wasn't a good thing. No, don't, don't mistake me here. The state of moral decline and spiritual apathy and idolatry in the nation of Israel at that time was such that these religious festivals that were meant to be worship of God, celebration of His goodness, and something that celebrated God's blessing on them as a people turned out to be this religious, raucous, rowdy, Mardi Gras-like celebration, right? By the way, if you didn't know, Mardi Gras also is supposed to be connected to a religious celebration. It's just really ironic how things change, but things don't change at all. And so that's the environment that they're going into. To give you a sense of the moral decline and the condition of, of Israelite society at the time, I'm going to read to you from the book of Judges, book, book of Judges in chapter 21, because in the Hebrew Bible, it's not Ruth that precedes 1 Samuel. That, that exists in our version of the Scriptures. We've put the Hebrew Bible, Judges, precedes 1 Samuel, and I think that's actually a better canonical order because it shows you what a breath of fresh air Samuel's going to be as you leave the book of Judges. Let me read to you a short narrative from Judges 21 that just displays this out-of-control condition in, of all people, God's people. Judges 21, verse 19. So, so the men of Israel said, Behold, there's this yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh. Does that sound familiar? Which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Listen to this, listen to this. Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to the dance, in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and each of you, each man, grab one for your wife from the daughters of Shiloh and run back to your tribe. So what's going on here is they're saying, guys, we need to get wives. So what's going on? Is that that festival at Shiloh when the girls come out to dance, you all hide in the bushes. When you see one you want, you jump out, you grab her, and you run back to your tribal clan. Okay, that's, that's not biblical dating, by the way. That's to show how bad things were in the people of God. That's how they would get a wife. It was no longer a godly conversation about families talking together and establishing a new family. It was hide in the bushes. When you see one dancing you like, go grab her and take her home. That was the environment, and I'm not sure if that was the same feast, but it's a feast in Shiloh where Elkanah has brought his family to worship because that's what the people of God were supposed to do. Now, I hope that gives you a little bit of insight into Eli when in verses 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel 1, 
He seems a little bit harsh with Hannah because he thinks she's drunk and she's in the temple praying. I hope you get a sense that this was probably pretty common, that there might have been an Israeli girl, a Hebrew girl that regretted some of her decisions and was just plastered and stumbled into the temple tents to, to ask God to fix things or whatever it might be while she was drunk out of her mind. He, Eli probably had to deal with that a lot and sees Hannah praying, as the Scripture says, in her heart, but her mouth, her lips were moving. And he said, well, here's just another rot, rowdy, drunk girl who's here supposed to be worshiping God, and she's just plastered. And so he's a little bit short-tempered with her until he finds out that far from being a rowdy, raucous, drunk woman, this was a godly woman crying out from the depths of her soul from pain. And, and Eli turns and uses this very pastoral, fatherly-like reaction from him to her. But Elkanah, however, in spite of all this, he genuinely was a pious and devout man who loved Yahweh and came to this festival worshiping and wanted to lead his family in ways that were honoring to God. And we, we see that about him. Look at verses 4 and 5. A bit of his character comes out. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. And notice, these were his sons and daughters as well, but notice how the, the author is making it clear that there's just a disconnect between Elkanah and these sons and daughters because of Penaniah. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Look at verse 8, skip down to verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? But in spite of Elkanah's great love for her, Hannah's life was full of lots of emotional pain. You can see it in verse 6 and 7. And her rival, Penaniah, used to provoke Hannah grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Penaniah used to provoke Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, just right there, an amazing contrast between Elkanah and Penaniah. And in one sense, Elkanah is this model of compassion and mercy, and Penaniah is this model of self-righteousness and cruelty. And, and really, this is, may not be the main point, but it's, it's so obvious, I don't want to miss it. Elkanah and Penaniah are really great examples of the two ways we will respond to those who are struggling. Our leading edge will be one of mercy and compassion, or our leading edge can be a sense of, a sense of self-righteousness, maybe even a little bit snarky, right? Elkanah was well within his rights as an 11th century B.C. Hebrew man in the Mideast to highly favor Peninnah because she bore children to him. But instead, Elkanah chose the route of mercy to Hannah. While Peninnah, 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 I can never get that name correct, her situation should have led her to humility and profound gratitude that God had blessed her abundantly. But those very blessings really led her to a self-righteousness and pride against Hannah. Now, did you notice in these short eight verses we've read that the authors are trying to lay out Hannah's desperate situation? In verse 2, it makes it clear, as he says, that Hannah had no children. 
verse 5 and verse 6, he writes twice that the Lord closed her womb. In verse 7, Hannah wept bitterly and she couldn't even eat. Now, if you just use a little bit of imagination, just a little bit of imagination, you can almost hear how painful the remarks would have been year after year because this was an annual feast around that table as Penaniah would always try to take every opportunity to make barbs at Hannah. As they were eating the portion that Elkanah had given to them, verse 4 and 5, you can almost hear this conversation between the kids and Penaniah. Kids saying, Mom, why does Hannah have so much food to eat? Penaniah, because Miss Hannah doesn't have any kids to share it with. Kids, well, why does Miss Hannah not have any kids? Penaniah. Because God closed her womb. Kids, did Miss Hannah do something wrong that would make God close her womb? And on and on the conversation would go. You could almost see Penina saying in hushed tones to her children, giving that snarky barb and a stare to Hannah, explaining to her kids what she might have done that caused God's judgment upon her, and that's why she couldn't have any children. Because in that culture, that's what barrenness was seen as, as a judgment of God. But we know clearly from Scripture that it was not a judgment from God then, nor is it now. As a matter of fact, if you know your Bible, if you know the Old Testament and New Testament, God seems to love to use barren women in His redemptive plan. Barren women seem to be God's favorite instruments in raising up key figures in the history of redemption. Who can forget Sarah, a barren woman, given the promises that a whole nation would come from her? or Rebecca, or Rachel, or Manoah's wife in Judges 13 who gave birth to Samson, the closest thing to an actual superhero in the Bible, right? All these women were barren, and God chose them to bring about key figures in redemptive history, or Elizabeth in the New Testament who gave birth to John the Baptist. You see, barren women giving birth in the Scriptures was a picture of God's work in salvation, Where there was no life, no birth was possible, God would bring new life. No matter what man could do, God would do a work and purely of his own grace and power bring about new life where there was no life. Friends, this is why we constantly pray for the salvation of those we love. This is why we pray and intercede on their behalf that God would bring new life to them. It is not a matter of our wisdom. It's not our refined arguments. It's not our displays of charity or social justice. Those things are important to do, but unless God brings about the new birth, people will not get saved, and God uses barren women as a picture of that. Where there could be no birth, God intervenes and brings about new life. Far from a judgment from God, God was using barren women in that time as an illustration of how he actually works. God miraculously bringing a new life when nothing else could do it. Are you still praying for your friends that way? Are you still praying that God would bring about a miraculous birth in their hearts, in their lives? The Old Testament, the New Testament, the barren women of Scripture are pointing us to remember that that's how God works, that God brings new life where there is none. 
So we see that God uses Hannah to, to be a display of the way he works. But the unfortunate thing for Hannah was she didn't have the benefit of Scripture to tell her that God was using her barrenness as a testimony of his power. <laughs> she didn't have that, which makes her faith even more amazing. In her pain, she chooses to trust and place her faith in the very one that causes her predicament. Did you catch that? In verses 5 and 6, twice, the author says, so we don't miss it, that the Lord closed Hannah's womb. And in her pain and in her humiliation, she didn't turn from him. She pressed in towards him. You see, God constantly uses our difficulty and our pain. He uses these things to hammer out the character and faith in his people. If you're a note taker, write down James chapter 1. That's the point James is trying to make at. Hannah is no exception. Her pain developed in her in ways that I know she would have chose otherwise an amazing and powerful faith. And that's what we're going to look at next in verses 9 to 28. Notice that the pain from her situation, the pain of her barrenness, the pain of the, of the mocking she got from Penaniah drove her to the Lord, not away. Boy, right, right there, I, I cannot help but camp on that for just a second. Where do you let your pain drive you? Right? We, we all got it. If we were actually to take a moment to talk about our pains right now, it would be overwhelming. We all have pain. Where do you let your pain drive you? And too often when we experience pain, we turn from the one, the only one that actually gets our pain, the only one that actually can do something about that fundamental pain. If you are experiencing pain in a room this size with this many people, I know somebody's experiencing pain. If you are experiencing pain, right, you will be tempted to turn from God. At the very least, you will be tempted to doubt God's goodness towards you. You will be tempted to doubt His love towards you. That's what pain does. But we know, and Scripture tells us, and it's a guarantee that whatever we turn to from God to deal with our pain, and we all do that, we all, when we have pain, will turn to someone or something to either alleviate the pain, uh, deaden the pain, or escape the pain. Whatever we turn to away from God will not give us what it promises. Whatever we turn to to deal with our pain, if it's not God, will never give us what it promises, no matter what it promises on the front end. Just ask anyone who struggles with a substance addiction. And that's what a lot of people turn to substance from, to deal with the pain. But whatever it promises on the front end, it does not deliver. And friends, God makes no pie-in-the-sky promises about dealing with our pain, does he? He doesn't, he doesn't promise that he's going to get rid of it. He doesn't promise that we won't face any of it. I mean, just this whole book is a testimony that God's people don't get a pass from pain simply because they're God's people. actually works the other way. God doesn't deliver his people from difficulty, does he? But he does deliver them in difficulty, and that's a significant difference. Now, what God does with our pain, He will do this. He may not take it away. He may not make it just disappear, but He will help us face it. He will deliver us in it. 
You say, well, then how, how does God, how does he do this? How does he help us face our pain? And he does it by promising himself, right? So hear me on this. Parents, you get this. You get this intuitively. You do it all the time, whether you know it or not. Uh, and, and if you're a sibling and you were old enough from your younger brother and sister where they looked at you kind of like almost a parent figure, you get it too. What I mean by that is when your child is afraid, remember when they were younger and they were just afraid in the dark or out in the woods, whatever it was, a situation that scared them, moms, have you ever said, oh, honey, don't worry, mommy's got her pepper spray in the purse, right? Dads, you have never comforted your children by telling them how much you bench press that afternoon. When our children are afraid, what is the intuitive thing you tell them? Don't worry, daddy's here. You don't comfort them with the things you can do or how, much, how strong your biceps are. We comfort them by simply saying, don't worry, sweetheart. Don't worry, son. Dad's here. Or, or don't worry, sweetheart. Mommy's here. Our presence is the thing by which we use to comfort them. And our children model for us the response we ought to have to God. What do they say? They don't say, yeah, but do you have your pepper spray? They don't ask that. They don't say, yeah, but how much did you lift today? They don't ask that. They say, thanks. Don't leave. Stay here. You see, the way we bring comfort to our children is the exact same way God brings comfort to his people in their pain. He promises his presence. Don't worry, I'm here. Don't worry, I'm here. When Jesus left this earth, he said, I am not going to leave you and I'm not going to forsake you. You're not going to see me, but don't worry, I'm here. And Hannah finds that in God's presence is more than she needs. Now, Hannah could not have been more powerless to affect the change in her life that she needed, but she knew that the Lord could. So look at verses back in chapter 1, verse 11, as she cries out to the Lord. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord and all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That had to do with the Nazarite vow. Okay? Let's skip to verse 20. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked the Lord for him, I have asked him for him from the Lord. You see, compared to the high priest Eli and, and this other wife, Peninnah, Hannah was insignificant. She, she was powerless. She doesn't seem to be the character in this passage that makes the difference. She doesn't seem to be the character that actually matters unless you understand her story in the larger context of redemptive history, that this is another example of how God works his plan. So, for example, we have Jeremiah the prophet. God used Jeremiah the prophet in one of the most mightiest ways. He was just young and very inexperienced and felt, I can't do this job. Amos the prophet, he was another one. He, he told the Lord, hey, I'm a simple shepherd. What I do is I cut fig trees. I don't talk to kings and royalty. You can't use me. Or Timothy the pastor. We have First and Second Timothy written about him. A young, timid uh, not a very aggressive pastor that was foundational in laying the, the pillars of the early church. Or we have a man like C.H. Spurgeon, 
completely uneducated British country boy that God raises and uses to start the largest church in the world in the 19th century. Or Billy Graham, just a North Carolina, Carolina farm boy who started life as a brush salesman. You see, God loves, He delights in using the little things that we bring so that when He does amazing things, He gets the credit. This is the way God works, and we're seeing that in 1 Samuel. Now, I want to read to you 1 Corinthians. If, if you've got a Bible, you can turn open the 1 Corinthians with me. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. This is what Paul writes, and this is in line to exactly what we're saying. Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, our painful situations, the difficulties in our lives, the very mistakes we've made become the very issue by which God uses to bring about maximum glory to Himself. As we come to Him saying, look, I, I, I cannot do any more here. I have messed this up. This is something that has plagued me. It is something that, 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 that I cannot overcome. I don't have what I need here. God says, that's exactly where I want you because now when I do something, you're not going to take the credit. You're going to give all the glory, and people are going to give all the glory to Him as the Lord supplies the faith to stain us, the grace to overcome, the ability to forgive the very thing you ask, why me, God? God says, because in your weakness, guess what? In your weakness, I'm made strong, right? right? So you see these ads everywhere, brown is the new green, right, for our, our, our lawns. Well, the Bible says weak is the new strong, and if you don't get that, you're not going to understand how God works. And God uses difficult things in our life to bring us to that point. And, 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 and if you have gone through a difficult thing, I know you would have rather chosen to avoid it, but for those of you that have grown through that, hasn't that been some of the most sweetest, broken fellowship you've ever experienced? Yeah? We all have them. Every one of us have them. I'm, I'm thinking through a situation right now in my mind that I want to share, but, but there was a period of our life when, when, uh, when uh, we first found out that Lori was pregnant with our firstborn, the doctor said, you, your child may have Edwards syndrome. It's a, it's a fatal chromosomal disease. And they said, we, we can't tell you whether or not that's going to be the case and f uh, for another four months. And I remember, uh, we didn't want this. It was the most difficult, broken four months of our lives. I've never seen my wife cry like that ever, before or since. It was tough. We did not want that. We thought, Lord, this is not what we were anticipating for our child. But I remember through that four-month period, God just working an amazing thing in my brokenness. There was a sweet fellowship, a point of saying, God recognizing, not God speaking to me, but the, the cumulative of being in church and hearing the Word of God and, and worship and knowing His character, recognizing, Rick, someone's got to love this kid, and I need you to do it. 
it, and it's going to be tough. If, if this is what it is, are you just willing to do that? And it went from, I don't want this to, I get it. You want me to love all your children, and this one's got to get loved just as much as anyone. And if that's the case, we're in. We are in. Well, that, that it didn't turn out that way. That, that our child, Asher, as you know, it, it did not have Edward syndrome. The point I'm getting at is that there was a, a time in my life, those four months, I would not have wanted to go through that ever. But there was a sweet fellowship communion with God that I have rarely experienced, a brokenness, and cry out saying, God, if this is what you're going to give us, then we're in. We're in. You see, God brings about in our lives things, difficult, good, but He does them to get us to a point where we can be as usable to Him because that is where our lives flourish most right? That is where our lives flourish most, when He can use us. And you know, one of the mistakes that we make as individuals, whether you're a Christian or not, is that we form our view of God based, about, based upon our circumstances and situations. But what happens as a result of that is we never get a, a full view of God or a correct view of God because our circumstances and situations change all the time. But if you form your view of your circumstances and situations through the character of God, probably for the first time, you will actually see your circumstances and situations correctly because you're seeing them through the character of God. Does that make sense? And we, so we can't do that. We can't form our view about who God is based on my circumstance. No, no, no. You have to form your view of your circumstance based on your view of God. We see that, that Hannah did that. She did that in two ways. In her actions, we see the way Hannah kept going to the temple, even though this must have been hard for her, this festival, but she kept going with faithfulness. Chapter 1, verse 9, she was at the temple praying to the very one that closed her womb. Praying out to the Lord, verses 10 through 12, she was consistent, she was earnest. There wasn't anger, there wasn't spite, it was, Lord, you are sovereign and supreme, but if you would look upon your servant, would you do this thing? She showed this tremendous respect for Eli, that she, she respected what God's institution and structures were. She wanted to live in submission to those things, even if her life was not personally benefiting from them. And then she gave up Samuel as she promised. The very thing that would fill her and make her complete, she said, Lord, if you give this to me, I'll give it up to you. She did all those things. Her lifestyle modeled this. I want to have a correct view of who you are. And her beliefs modeled it too. Do you notice in her prayer, we'll see that a little bit more, especially in chapter two, her true delight, her true delight actually wasn't in having a child. It would have been great but we see through her prayers, her true delight was in the Lord. And she recognized that she was the Lord's servant. She knew that, of, that this Lord, Yahweh, could do anything He needed to do for her benefit. And she also knew that what He does, including her difficulty, was not indiscriminate, but there was some kind of plan that God was moving things along. And we see in, in verse 12 of chapter 1, she receives this baby. Now, there is a way we can read this passage such that we would actually miss the true point of what this narrative is trying to get at. We can say, great, Hannah cried out uh, she, with this faith and humility and trust in God. God opened her womb, gave her a baby, so the other wife, she's going to eat crow now. Everything works out in Elkanah's house. This is fantastic. That is not the point of what we're looking at. 
This, this simple domestic conflict being resolved is not the point of this. The point of Samuel chapter 1 and 2 is to start laying out how God's divine plan works out, and it goes through the entire book of 1 Samuel and throughout the rest of Scripture. While Hannah is an important figure in that she is, is, is rightly devout before the Lord, she knows who to go to, she's not the main focus. She is not the main focus of this passage. Now, some of the difficulty comes from when we read the Old Testament, we kind of think whoever gets the most text time is the main focus. And in in one sense, that's true, but the question is, who's actually getting the most text time? Who is actually the one that's always being referred to or talked about in this passage? It's the Lord. It is the Lord. And Hannah's life, Hannah's circumstances only serve as the canvas by which God's picture of His plan and His glory is being painted upon it. Now, if we stop and think about it, that's a lot like our lives too, isn't it? We kind of tend to think that our lives and the way we're living is all about our lives and the way we're living. And we forget that there's a lot greater things going on and that our lives individually as God's creations are each bits of canvas that God is painting upon what He is about. So His story is clearly seen. You see, this, this is one of the, the pain points of our culture, the, the, the tensions that we're living in, right? Because our culture is constantly telling us what? That your life is What? Your life, right? You hear it all the time. This is my life. I get to do with it what I want to do. It's my decision. The culture is trying to tell us that we are the center of the universe, and there's parts we tend to believe that until, right, this experience, you watch the news, and you hear about all that's going on in the world. What do you naturally feel? If you're like me, you remember like the, just somebody talked about the tsunami in 2004. Do you remember the tsunami of 2004, those of you old enough? The devastation, 200,000 lives wiped out in a day. You watch the things on the news and you begin to feel real small. And, 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 or on a good side, if you go someplace beautiful and you see a natural wonder, we're at the Grand Canyon, you look at the Grand Canyon and you go, whoa, I feel like this. And not in like this low self-esteem way that you got to try and help us feel better about ourselves. That's not how we feel. We rightly feel, whoa, there is so much more going on than me. And see, yet our culture keeps trying to tell us, no, life's all about you, life's all about you. But we keep bumping into these realizations, no way, this is not all about me. There's more going on than my concerns and my plans. Again, it's not, life is not less than that, but it's so much more than that. Shakespeare was right. He said, all the world is a stage and men and women are merely actors who say their lines in fury and leave off the platform. Something like that. That's something like what he said. (laughs) So here's a critical key in reading the Old Testament. I want to say this now as we begin our study of 1 Samuel because if, if all we are looking for when we read the Old Testament are moral lessons to follow or, or, um, more examples to learn from, we will miss the entire message of the Old Testament. Those two, two things are going to happen. Number one, if you read the Old Testament that way, looking for or lessons and examples to follow, you'll never understand most of the Old Testament. You're just not going to get it because that's not what the Old Testament was written about. 
Secondly, you'll get very bored with reading the Old Testament. I mean, how many times can you learn to be like brave little David after all, right? It's just, what, what's the point of this? It's not to provide for us moral lessons and examples to follow. It's kind of like, you remember as a kid, you had those uh, uh, paint-by-the-numbers kinds of projects that, or, or connect-the-dots. So you could actually kind of see what it was they were trying to have you make you know, vaguely, uh, without the dots, but when you connected everything, when you filled them in, then you got to see the real picture that you're supposed to be making, right? The point of the analogy is this. The dots, the numbers, weren't the thing themselves. They only served to connect everything so you could see the grander picture. And that's exactly how we are to read our lives and the Old Testament. What's being there is not to focus in on the dots or the numbers, They only serve the point as they reveal the larger picture of what's happening. Every page of the Old Testament is not trying to provide necessarily moral examples or examples to to follow or lessons, although you can get those. It's trying to paint this picture of this amazing God, His character, His plans and purposes, and how He's unfolding them all along. You see, this passage is not a lesson about the underdog coming out on top. We like that. We're Americans. That's not what this text is about. This text isn't about how God answers faithful and humble prayers when they need it. That's not what it's about. It's not even about a lesson of God's mercy and kindness. That's not what it's about. It is first and foremost a reflection of God's ways of working out His sovereign plan through the complexities and difficulties of people's lives in such a way that they recognize their helplessness and their need of help from above. You see, in that way, all the pages and narratives of the Old Testament are trying to hint at the gospel narrative, that you cannot save yourself that a barren woman cannot give herself a child. Somebody has to come in from the outside and give divine life. These are all hints pointing to our need for a Savior. Okay, I'm going to leave you to read verses 21 and 28 on your own. Let's skip down to chapter 2. So Hannah, going to God, prays this amazing prophetic prayer. Let me just read this to you. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, this is after she got her son uh, Samuel, and she brings Samuel back. Three years have passed to present him back to the temple. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit as with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Hannah's 
painful life developed in her this precious faith, and that produced this prophetic prayer. And these, these 10 verses set the tone, really set the tone of this entire book. The themes that are in Hannah's prayer are the themes introduced through almost every chapter through the book of 1 Samuel. And these 10 uh, verses are not merely the poetic expression of Hannah's life. They are the poetic expression of how God acts, and they are the very same themes of the gospel. Did you notice that? Now, before we conclude, I just cannot help but make comparisons to another young woman that was, was, was praying and had a miracle child, and her prayer of thanksgiving is recorded as well. Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 45, Mary's prayer, called Mary's Magnificent, is almost identical in theme to what Hannah prayed. And, and that's not because Mary went to the, the scroll of 1 Samuel and thought, I'm going to pray that too. It was the Holy Spirit that prayed, that led Mary in that prayer. Notice the parallels that both, both Samuel and Jesus were miracle children. Hannah's child was to be the king maker. Mary's child was to be the king. Hannah's child was going to be used to usher in the monarchy. Mary's child was the monarch. Hannah's child was used to set up a temporary kingdom that would point to the eternal kingdom. Mary's child would establish this eternal kingdom. Hannah's child was to speak the words of God as a prophet. Mary's child became the word of God. You see, way back here in 1 Samuel, the passage is instructing us that God is the great reverser of fortunes. Like the gospel, He makes the powerless powerful. He makes the poor rich. The last, He makes first. He does it on a massive universal scale, which is the, the theme of the prayer in chapter 2, but He also does it on a very intimate personal scale that we saw in Hannah's own life. This is the God of the gospel. And it's the gospel that's weaving its way all through 1 Samuel. Constant reminders that new life cannot be something you fabricate and cannot be something you can help yourself on. It comes from God himself. And we see that in a barren woman named Hannah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as we look at the Old Testament, we kind of feel a little out of place because we're no, so used to the new, we see that the very thing we're familiar with in the New Testament is right there in the Old Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that as far back as the book of 1 Samuel, you are weaving into these narratives that we are a people that cannot save ourselves, that our salvation must come from you. Your gracious response to a people desperate for a Savior. So we thank you for that. May we pray and, and see the wonders of your beauty, your character displayed all through the book of 1 Samuel. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.